Welcome to This Functional Life, a show for women just like you, who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, purpose. We're going to deconstruct norms, uncover your deepest desires, harness your physical and mental health, and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what you want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking complex science and making it easy to understand and integrate into daily life. Join the journey to make this chapter the best ever. Let's get thriving. Welcome to another edition of This Functional Life. So today I'm going to continue on with the discussion about autoimmunity and the different mechanisms at play with autoimmune conditions. So if you listened last week, I talked a lot about why we see so much more autoimmunity in women than men and the relationship particularly to sex hormones and immune stimulation. So today I'm going to go on to two other major topics, and they are really the underpinnings of autoimmune conditions, regardless of the sex of the person who happens to be diagnosed. And so we're going to be talking about intestinal permeability or leaky gut and dysbiosis, which is a fancy way of saying that your microbiome is out of balance. All right, so let's hit this topic and talk about it. So let's start with the microbiome, because to be honest, when we talk about autoimmunity or just your, your health of your body in general, you cannot divorce the microbes from our GI tract and the function of the immune system within the GI tract and actually the entire immune system. And I would actually beg to say that it's really anything that's happening within the body. We now understand that the microbes within our gut and within the different um, ecosystems in our body, because we have a vaginal microbiome, we have a nasal microbiome, we have a skin microbiome, but we have a symbiotic relationship in most cases with our little friends. And we have crosstalk and communication between our body and our microbiomes. And so we're going to talk specifically when these things go awry with autoimmune conditions in particular. So, you know, the, the ability to really look at the microbiome in great detail has only really come about in the last 15 to 20 years. And it was actually after the, the Human Genome Project where we were able to use the same technology, genetic sequencing, to actually identify the microbiome. Prior to this, all of the identification that was really done especially for bacteria, which are microscopic, was to put them in a Petri dish and then let them grow and then figure out what grew out of that Petri dish. The challenge with that old and antiquated technology is about 80% of the microbes that actually live in our GI tract will not survive after being exposed to oxygen because they are what they call anaerobic. So they live in a lack of oxygen environment. And so they don't fare very well once they've been exposed to oxygen. So the older antiquated technology that we still use, and I, and there's a time and a place for it that I would say from a overarching aspect of what's going on in the microbiome, it is really too antiquated to help other than looking for very specific pathogenic bacteria like you know, your C. diff or your Escherichia coli 157, you know, some of your more pathogenic ones that we have done a lot of research over the years and we've identified millions of times over that they're bad. But what we understand now is our microbes are neither good nor bad. So that's the first thing is we have a symbiotic relationship with the microbes in our gut and there's a couple of things that are required for that to happen. So first and foremost, our, our gut is kind of like a jungle. 
And in that jungle, I have lots of different animals. So I'm going to have lions and tigers and bears. I'm going to have squirrels, snakes, spiders. I'm going to have every kind of creature. And the more diverse that microbiome is, so the wilder and the more exotic the animal selection is, the healthier generally the microbiome is. And we also know that the richness of the species, so do I have a lot of each one, actually helps make our microbiome healthier. And when they've done studies, and they did early studies looking at fecal samples from people in Burkina Faso and then a more westernized location and you know different places throughout the world. And what they found was the more westernized our diet and the more sanitary we were, the less diversity we had in our microbiome. So to some degree, we don't know, but we, you know, everything that we have been able to identify in the last 15 years or so sort of points to our really, really sanitary and, and altered food supply and all the things that we've done in the Western world has made our microbiome less diverse and actually has probably made us be at a greater risk for things like autoimmune conditions because of that lack of diversity. So a forest is as healthy as the diversity of the animals within the forest. So if it's a very diverse forest, we have predators and animals that are not predators, but the the ecosystem is balanced. And so our gut needs to be balanced in the same way. So within our gut, we have bacteria, we have yeast and fungus that do belong there. There are pathogenic strains like candida, but we do have non-pathogenic yeast in our gut that belong there. We have phages. So we have a lot of different organisms and even some, you know, protozoa that have been found to be somewhat commensal or what's considered generally common in the GI tract that aren't pathogenic. So we have a lot of these diverse bugs in our gut that keep the gut healthy. So they have a communication process that they communicate with each other and that they also communicate back and forth with our immune system. So when we look at our microbiome, and we've done studies mostly in rats where we've we've wiped out their microbiome or they are clean and then looked at what happens when we have just one strain within an animal or, or multiple strains, but not as wide a variety. And the truth is, you know, research coming out from studies from everywhere from Yale and everywhere else has shown that gut bacteria can evolve over time. So it can go from being good too bad, right? So think of it as, I like to I like to make analogies that really work. So think of it as you've got a bunch of dogs in your jungle. Let's say they're pit bulls. And so 99.9% of pit bulls are really healthy and really happy dogs and they're great dogs. But maybe we have one or two that have been mistreated or inbred or something like that. So it's a less than stellar strain. Well, what happens is, is if we have a preponderance of those, they can shift their direction over time and become more harmful rather than helpful. What that means is, is we could have changes to our microbiome that have happened over time and that they tend to progress. And what may have been okay 10 years ago has now become not okay, probably because there are other things that change that microbiome. So what causes this dysbiosis? So first and foremost, the you know, way in which we're delivered. So if you've had vaginal delivery as your delivery into this world, you have a better and more diverse microbiome. And it's more what would be substantially seen in a human. If you were born C-section inside the hospital, you picked up the bugs that were in the room with you and they're radically different. 
And actually, there is a lot of interest and in a lot of practitioners who actually do a vaginal swab if a, if a baby is born C-section just to make sure they get a little bit of that passage of that bacteria from the vaginal canal to help inoculate the baby. So how you are delivered, what your first couple years of experience is, so the type of foods you eat, whether you're breastfed or not, all of those can play a role. And of course, if we look at the biggest things, things like antibiotic use are going to definitely throw off the microbiome. And what we see now is the majority of our microbiome is somewhat set by the time we're about five years old. And that's where we get kind of our best case scenario. And that seems to be somewhat downhill from there, unless you do something radically to change that microbiome. Those microbes are really, really important. What else happens with the microbiome and how can we have other issues? So obviously, if I take antibiotics, antibiotics are generally full-spectrum killers. They don't just kill the single bacteria in general that we're going after. It is much more um, broad-spectrum, and so they are often damaging to the other healthy microbes in our gut. You know, the world is littered with people that have been put on an antibiotic for one reason or another and have ended up with digestive problems and other problems in that because they were given this um, antibiotic. So obviously, the more of those that we've had, the more damaging it is. Uh, the other things that can change is, is our eating habits. So, you know, early on, the hope was, oh my gosh, if we give probiotics in the form of capsules, they're going to radically change the microbiome. Well, what we know is probiotics influence their fellow brethren growing. So if I give a lactobacillus probiotic, it'll probably help the lactobacillus within the gut grow, but they don't radically change the microbiome. There are spore-forming bacteria. The spore-forming bacteria and yeast like Saccharomyces boulardii don't actually inhabit our digestive tract. And we can take those as a probiotic. And what they do is they sort of move in for a short period of time in the gut and help make a healthier environment for the good microbes to grow. So they can help remodel a little bit. But the hope of taking a probiotic and radically changing the microbiome doesn't really happen. And actually, fecal transplant has been the only thing that has really radically changed the microbiome. But in some cases, that's still fraught with opportunity because you want to know where your donor microbiome came from and you want to make sure that they're not passing anything that might be potentially pathogenic to you. Those microbes are really, really important. And so we end up sort of disrupting them over time. We can also have things where we're eating foods that trigger the growth of different camps of bacteria. So our bacteria actually make little biofilms. So think of those as like little miniature castles that the bacteria hang out in. And so each little group of bacteria that are, that are cousins and brothers of each other, they build a castle and then they sort of fight the castle next door. And that's actually why our microbiome, when it's more diverse, is healthier because we actually have a wide variety of bacteria that are sort of trying to beat each other back into submission. So think of it in another way. You could think of it as there are a bunch of drug gangs fighting over the turf on a corner. And because they're fighting with each other, they generally leave everything else alone around it. And so to some degree, the more we have that sort of turf war going on and it's equaled out, the better. But how we eat grows different bacteria. So for instance, the Firmicutes Phyla, which is one of our dominant phylas, love a high carbohydrate and diet. So if I eat a standard American diet or a very high carb diet, I'm going to grow a lot of those microbes. Now, if I have a very low carb, high fat diet, I'm probably going to grow more bacteroides. So these different groups grow in different environments and foods can and will change it. 
And you can have prebiotics, which are the kind of pre-foods. It's the things like fiber and resistant starches that also feed the good bacteria. So you're basically giving them their food. There's different ways to sort of influence the microbes. But when we're talking about autoimmunity, we have two things that are going on first with the distribution of the microbes. So in some cases, we have potentially pathogenic and pathogenic bacteria that may be colonizing within somebody's gut that cause different disease states. Or we think it's through a mechanism called molecular mimicry, where you get colonized by a particular bacteria that then stimulates the immune system and turns on autoimmunity. One of the clearest ones of these is um, is ankylosing spondylitis, which is a autoimmune condition where the body and the immune system is attacking the sacroiliac joint in lower back in most cases. Sometimes it does have some involvement with digestive problems as well, but it attacks that area and starts to cause inflammation. And then it will cause a slow fusing of those bones through the inflammation. It's one of the only autoimmune conditions that actually skews heavily male, oddly enough. And it's a HLA B27 gene. So if I carry that gene, which we're going to talk about in next week's show, if I carry this particular gene risk and I get colonized, particularly by Klebsiella pneumoniae, which is a opportunistic, potentially pathogenic bacteria, that may be very well the mechanism that turned on the autoimmune condition. So technically what's happening is the body goes to attack that bacteria And through the mechanisms of getting turned on to that, it flips the switch on that gene and all of a sudden the immune system sort of turns on itself and turns on the body. And there's other bacteria like Proteus mirabilis. There's research showing that that may be a major trigger for celiac. And then Klebsiella pneumoniae has also been shown to be a potential trigger for rheumatoid arthritis. And there's several of these microbes that may be in themselves more pathogenic to other individuals or different individuals based on their sort of genetic makeup and what else may be going on in their body. So the microbes can be potentially pathogenic and damaging. The other thing that can happen is our good microbes can get out of balance with each other and that in itself can increase your risk of autoimmune conditions. Because the other thing is the the bacteria communicate with our immune system. And they do that through several different mechanisms. One of the ways that our our bacteria actually communicate with our body is it actually uses the basal vagal nerve, which is the large nerve that runs kind of down, down your spine, into your intestines and your gut and back up to the brain. And we have crosstalk between the microbes and the immune system and the brain. And so... You know, some of your cravings, some of your different things that you want, some of the different moods you may have may very well be be driven by your microbes more so than even your own brain chemistry. So let's talk about the the interaction at the small intestine. So in our in our gut, we have our digestive tract, which is everything from chewing and seeing food, producing um, saliva in the mouth, and actually starting to chew food starts the digestive process. And so that turns on enzymes from the pancreas. We start to excrete hydrochloric acid inside the stomach to break down proteins, and we start to digest our foods. Once we start digesting our foods, eventually things are going to get to the small intestines. And so the small intestines, if we were to stretch them out and spread them out, they would actually take up the size of about a tennis court, one side of a tennis court. We have a lot of shag-like carpet in there called villi that increases our surface area so we can absorb our nutrients. And within that 
intestinal wall, we have microbes that live up against it. Now, the majority of our microbes, the majority of particularly our bacteria live in the colon and large intestines where there is very little oxygen. So the concentration of bacteria gets greater as you go lower in the digestive tract, in a healthy digestive tract. There are things like SIBO, which I'll talk about at another um, another show, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth where that growth has happened in the wrong place. But we'll leave that on the table right now and just talk about the microbiome and its relationship to the gut. Well, often, so we have this tight layer right against the small intestine. We have a water-like layer that is between that. And then we have a loose layer and we have different bacteria that hang out in those different layers. And their job is to actually help maintain the mucosal integrity of that wall. So it's to keep that wall safe and keep it intact and to communicate back and forth to the immune system. So our microbes are incredibly important to the intestinal permeability and the leakiness of the gut with a kind of a yes or no sort of situation. So when our microbes are out of balance, we're going to have problems with that communication. On that intestinal wall, we have different kinds of cells. We have different kinds of immune cells. We have a cell that's called a dendritic cell that actually sends a little, you know, kind of feeler up in between the cells of the intestines and sort of feels around. So think of it as almost like a a probe that it sends up into the intestines, into the things going by. So the foods, the bacteria, the toxins, and sort of feels around to say, what's going on in here? So it's doing surveillance. Dendritic cells exist in the intestines and the brain only. And so 75% of the immune system and its function and its surveillance activities are hanging out and in the gut itself. And most of that is concentrated in the small intestines because that's where Things that shouldn't be here coming in, like pathogens, like parasites and viruses and other bacteria that you shouldn't have. And it's also where we're supposed to be digesting and assimilating our nutrients. So it's vital to our health. And so those dendritic cells may feel things around and on the cell walls themselves. So last time I talked a little bit about celiac disease, that that's the only autoimmune condition we know the cause of. And celiac disease is a loss of that shag carpet within the intestines. So your shag carpet that gives you all that surface area becomes Berber. So you lose a bunch of absorptive area and so you can't absorb your nutrients. So that's one of the major things with celiac. There's a protein on that intestinal wall called zonulin. And then there's another one called actin. And zonulin and actin, it was, I think, 2009, I may have that year off a little bit, Dr. Fasano, who at the time was at University of Maryland, who's now at Harvard, identified that in celiac patients, this zonulin level was elevated. So we see extra zonulin in the bloodstream, and that's a protein coming from the intestinal wall. So we see this protein spilling out into the blood. And you can also see it in stool testing. So we can actually test for zonulin levels as a marker of leaky gut. We can also test to see, are you making antibodies to that zonulin? Because you can imagine if I'm making this protein in my intestines and I'm making antibodies to it, that means my immune system has developed antibodies to go destroy the intestine, right? Not good. So that is the best marker we have for, do you have leaky gut or not? Well, we have another protein called actin. Same thing. We can see actin in the stool. We can see actin in the blood. We can also see antibodies to actin. And so these two, we can pick up and we can actually monitor, do we have leaky gut? And then there's two other blood tests that we look at to kind of say, do I have leaky gut or not? Is, is my intestines 
a soaker hose or a sieve rather than a hose or a full-sided bowl. Does that make sense? So my intestines should be like a hose and keep everything in there until the very end when we're supposed to absorb stuff. But if it's a soaker hose, things are oozing out into the bloodstream and getting exposure to my immune system that my immune system would have never seen. We also have two bacterial byproducts. And these are specifically made by gram-negative bacteria. And so gram-negative bacteria make lipopolysaccharides, which is actually the exterior of gram-negative bacteria's kind of shell. So it's like a fuzzy exterior. So it makes it hard for antibiotics to get in and destroy them. And it also makes them very easy to stick to the walls. Think of them as kind of like porcupines. And so they sort of stick to the wall. It makes it easy for them to colonize. And that lipopolysaccharides, if they're under attack, they actually spin them out like quills. And so they'll, they'll see this increase of this lipopolysaccharide in the bloodstream. And that is what's causing immune stimulation and also another sign of leaky gut. And that drives it back to maybe leaky gut associated with bacteria out of balance, particularly in the intestines around the small intestines that may be stimulating the immune system. So if you talk to your practitioner and they say there's no way to know if there is leaky gut or not, then you need to go to another practitioner because when we look at the microbiome and we can see lipopolysaccharides elevated and I can see antibodies to lipopolysaccharides in the bloodstream because my immune system is trying to attack that. And I can see zonulin antibodies and actin antibodies. That says there's a immune process going awry, there's leaky gut going on, and there's things happening here. The other thing is there's two proteins called occludin and clodulin, which are sticky proteins that sort of hold the junctures between the cells and the small intestines together. So when we eat certain foods, so gluten being the one that we know the most about, that opening in the intestines can open up and it uh, just sort of, it's kind of like taking a chink out of the wall and allowing, you know, something to stream through. So think of it as sort of a sliding door that we can slide in and back. Well, we don't want that to happen. We don't want it to happen a lot. And we definitely don't want to leave the door open. And so when we have immune processes that are awry, or we have bacterial that are out of balance, and they're miscommunicating with the intestines, or I'm taking medications that can cause damage to the gut, like NSAIDs and pain relievers, or proton pump inhibitors, or a myriad of other things, I'm going to cause that juncture to open up and I'm going to cause the permeability within the intestines. Now, what's interesting is they did a study looking at people and testing their leaky gut markers. And then they had them go out and have a cheeseburger, French fries, and a soda. And then they tested those same leaky gut markers five hours later. And what they found was there was a dramatic uptick in those leaky gut markers up to five hours later in these individuals. So what does that mean? That means that the way a standard American diet is eaten in the U.S. and the type of foods that we eat drives this inflammatory response and in itself can cause leaky gut. And it's probably also contributing to the bacterial balance that is, you know, all problematic. So how we eat and what we do can cause intestinal permeability and it can also cause bacterial changes that may make that stuff worse. Let's talk a little bit about that small intestines, leaky gut, what's really happening? What else leads to it? So infections. So if I have bacteria that are overgrown, fungal overgrowth, parasites, 
if I have another autoimmune condition that's causing damage, that's just going to make it worse. Things like chronic alcoholism. So alcohol intake is going to cause leaky gut. Exercising too much, causing oxidative stress and not being able to recover well from that. And then food sensitivities, food allergies, and other immune reactions, which we're going to talk about in another show. So that hyperpermeability or that excessive permeability allows the immune system to get an exposure to these things that are in your intestines that aren't completely digested yet. So one of the things that often comes up, it's kind of a chicken or the egg, is, you know, in all autoimmune conditions, and Fasano did most of this work, we see leaky gut and we see dysbiosis. So those two are going to be pretty much guaranteed. So in our world, in the functional medicine world, we always start with looking at the gut and probably doing stool testing and food sensitivity testing to try and figure out what things do we need to remove from the diet or get rid of, like bacteria? What things do we need to replace to make sure you're digesting your foods properly? You know, do we need to re-inoculate and get rid of bacteria and put good guys back in? And do I need to repair the walls? And eventually the goal is to rebalance it because everything really lives and dies in the gut. And even your other problems like hormonal problems have a huge relationship here. So the microbes are going to be very, very important to that whole process. And so in most cases, we're going to look at that from a stool testing standpoint to try and determine who's in there and what do we need to do about them? You know, in my world, we do stool testing where we actually look at the DNA of the microbe itself so we can tell who they are. And this is an area I have been just submerged in for years because that is actually what I'm looking at in my dissertation for my PhD, which was changes to the microbiome, bacterial byproducts, specifically in women with IBS. So I have been just deep, deep, deep in the literature here. And so we actually know quite a bit about it. So in the autoimmune world, it doesn't matter whether you have celiac, Crohn's, colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, alopecia areata, lupus, any mixed connective tissue, Sjogren's, scleroderma, any of those things, there's going to be relationship within the gut. I want to now really focus in on the leaky gut component. So in the intestines, like I said, we have this architecture of our small intestines that is designed to basically keep things inside the gut and keep the microbes inside the gut where they belong. And so when we have leaky gut, ultimately what happens is we have this juncture between the gut and the bloodstream that is now exposed. So those things that become permeable and those tight junctures sort of open up. And that change in permeability creates easy passage for things like our our own microbiome, our commensal bacteria, and their byproducts. So here's a tacky way of thinking about it, but you know, it makes sense. If I have bacteria in my gut, they're going to eat. So they're going to take some of your food and then they're going to go to the bathroom in you. So we have bacterial pee. So in a fancy way of saying that is you get bacterial or microbial metabolites. So they produce all these metabolites that are also now in our gut because they've been consuming our food. And then those things and the microbes themselves get exposure to the immune system. Those things enter the bloodstream. Once that occurs, we also will probably see things like foods that are partially digested where the peptide strings, the proteins are still intact, something like gluten or gliadin. Well, now it hasn't been completely digested yet and it's getting exposure again to the immune system. And that's, you know... I've been doing this for over 18 years and I, I can't even begin to guess how many stool tests I've done on people and food sensitivities. 
And I really kind of look at it as almost chicken and the egg. Almost always we have both going on. So leaky gut for sure, microbial imbalance for sure. And then there's almost always some food sensitivities where the immune system is seeing foods as foreign. But you know, early on when stool testing wasn't as commercially available and wasn't as good as it is today, I think it was easy to fall back on food sensitivity testing because it was a little more reliable. And so, you know, we went after taking all these foods out of the diet. Well, I kind of believe today that yes, food sensitivities are important and that often they are commingled with this problem, but I think it's the leaky gut and the dysbiosis that drives the food sensitivities. And so I don't rely as heavily on them now, even though I do use them because we have to often take them out for a short period of time. But the goal is to not make somebody more and more sensitive to foods by narrowing their diet again and again and again and again and again. So all of this is to say that wall ends up permeable and stuff gets out and everywhere. We have a bunch of immune cells that are in this area that are actually in the walls of the intestines, things like T cells and B cells and macrophages and the dendritic cell I was talking about. So these play an essential role in maintaining the balance in our gut, the homeostasis, and they help balance other things. So we have other immune system cytokines like tumor necrosis factor alpha, different interleukins and interferon gamma that regulate the junctions. So it actually regulates whether those doors open up or not between the cells. And we can also have TNF-alpha actually activating NF-kappa B, which is also a regulator of the immune system as well. So you have this crosstalk that's happening between the microbes, the gut itself, the immune systems within it, and the inflammatory response that comes from it. And you can't really take them away from each other. So at the end of the day, there's almost always a, a relationship between the microbes and the leaky gut. So like I said, the GI tract and the microbes that are in there uniquely shape us as a host and our, our, our immunity itself and our metabolism. So what also happens when these microbes, whether it's a candida species or a opportunistic bacteria like Heliobacter pylori or um, Shingella, they actually disrupt the intestinal lining and can collapse the brush border, which is that sort of hair-like structure on the intestines where we actually emit our brush border enzymes. And so they actually change that pattern on the wall. Not only do they cause leakiness, but they will destroy some of that brush border and then we'll get digestive insufficiency that can come from that because the enzymes that break down those starchy carbohydrates and other foods don't get out at the same level because the brush border, the, the tips of those villi are where we actually emit those enzymes. So you get this sort of ongoing sort of feedback loop that happens. One of the other things is, you know, we need nutrients to metabolize foods, things like B vitamins. And um, a lot of those nutrients are stockpiled in different parts of the body, like the liver, you know, so foods that we eat that maybe have less fiber that Fiber feeds our good microbiome, but even if we look at like a low fiber diet, what that's going to do is increase, speed up the transit time. So we're going to go to go to the bathroom more frequently, and we're going to see more harmful byproducts of digestion that also cause irritation to the gut mucosa. So one of the more common things that we see when somebody has either a low fiber diet or they've got things happening in the gut is the the bile acids that are made by the liver 
held by the gallbladder that end up in the bile. They are there to help us emulsify fats and break things down. They get metabolized, but they're supposed to be reabsorbed in the large intestine. Well, often if the gut is moving rapidly, we don't see that. So you get bile acid malabsorption, which then causes damage and irritation to the gut mucosal barrier, which now increases the inflammation. And we see this sort of feedback loop. And so there's all kinds of things that can contribute to that. Like I said, medications, chemotherapy, PPIs, the the name goes on and on and on and on. So there's this sort of feedback that's happening. So what does the research really say about this? Because, you know, depending on your practitioner, if you're listening, if you have a more conventional uh, physician, they may or may not be aware of the depth of the literature uh, looking at this. But I'll just give you a couple examples. So if we look at type 1 diabetes, which is where the body's attacking the pancreas and shuts down the beta cells ability to make, make insulin. And so often they're going to become insulin dependent diabetics. So when we look at some of the studies, they, they found that there was an increased permeability of the intestinal type junctions and there was GI symptoms that regularly were present in these patients. And studies showed that there are changes in the gut wall of the large intestine that help the luminal bacteria. So the good bacteria breach that wall and get past the wall into the what they call extra luminal tissue, which is think of that as sort of the, the area between the exterior wall and the, um, the drywall inside. And then that stimulates the immune system. And that increased local permeability of the intestinal mucus ba- uh, barrier increased pro-inflammatory cytokines leading to the derangement of the immune system. And it acted as an antigen and it triggered the actual autoimmunity of type 1 diabetes. Interestingly enough, there's a huge correlation between celiac, gliadin, and type 1 diabetes also. So let's look at multiple sclerosis. So multiple sclerosis and even Crohn's disease exhibit a particular behavior in the B cells, which is a, the B cells are one of your immune system cells that we're going to talk about when we talk about foods that is a sign of antigen exposure. So it's one of the cells that your body makes when it says, hey, I've seen this bacteria or this virus or this parasite. I need to go attack it. I'm going to go create an army fighter. And so it's a sign of antigen exposure. Well, we know that multiple sclerosis, Crohn's, and even and even um, colitis have good research showing that. And what we also see is that there's pre-existing genetic abnormalities in the permeability of the small intestine. So these individuals carry some increased risk for small intestinal damage and antigen exposure as pathogens get exposed. So we know that bacterial infections are believed to be causing multiple sclerosis, but we don't have clear epidemiological evidence, but there are definitely studies out there saying, hey, bacterial infections precede the onset of MS. So we can also look at other inflammatory bowel diseases. So Crohn's and colitis um, have defects in the permeability of the GI tract. And Crohn's and colitis are sort of unique because there's defects in the paracellular permeability of the intestinal tract, and there is a turning of the immune system on the commensal bacteria. So in most healthy individuals, we have a handshake and a friendly neighborhood. We have a friendly fence. We love each other. We love our microbiome. And on the other side of the fence is our body, and we get along great. In Crohn's and colitis, those microbes are now adversarial, specifically, with the intestinal wall and the mucus barrier. 
And in some cases, that barrier, um, the cytokine expression and the increased inflammatory markers like tumor necrosis factor alpha initiate this inflammation causing the damage. And the dysbiosis seen as an imbalance arises and actually starts and turns this on. And so even in some cases, people with especially Crohn's, it is contraindicated in many cases to give like high dose probiotics because you may actually make it worse. So if we look at all of this and we say, okay, what do we need to do? So obviously we have to figure out who's in the gut, what microbes are in there, what's the balance of them. And then there's a huge part of functional digestion. So I alluded to that, the ability to emulsify fats, to get your enzymes out of your pancreas in the right place to break down your foods. The enzymes like protease and um, pepsin to stimulate hydrochloric acid along with, along with histamine in the stomach to break down proteins. So there's this huge relationship between all of those things that may, that need to work because the other thing that's often going to co- cohabitate with autoimmune activity, leaky gut and microbial imbalance is going to be digestive functional issues. And so that's why I'm such a passionate um, lover of a really good stool test because it's going to show all those things. So we can actually tell, can you break down your foods properly? Because if you aren't breaking down properly, the microbes in your gut will, and that will perpetuate and cause problems with microbial diversity changes and also things like SIBO where the bacteria are growing into places where they don't belong. So we have to look at all of that. And then we, we go through the five R's and the five R's says, okay, like I alluded to, you know, what do I need to remove? What bacteria, yeast, fungus, you know, are there, are there parasitic things in my gut? Although to be honest, in autoimmune conditions, parasitic worms, helmet worms are actually protective. I know it sounds gross if you haven't heard or read that, but having a helmet worm infection actually turns off the immune system. Because one of the major, major components of autoimmunity is an immune system that's bored. And when we have intestinal worms, our immune system knows what it needs to do. So autoimmunity is a Western world problem. We don't see a lot of autoimmune penetration in environments where people have a high likelihood for parasitic activity because their immune system's already busy doing what it needs to do. So the more sanitary we are, the more we just devoid the environment of the microbes in our soil, and the more we remove the healthy things from our soils, the minerals and other things, the more we're going to see this problem. So we got to get rid of those things. We got to remove the stuff that shouldn't be there. We got to replace what's missing. So if I can't digest my foods because I can't make enough hydrochloric acid, or I've got bile flow problems, whatever those things are, I need to get that fixed. I need to repair the wall. And so the other thing that people often think is, oh, if I have leaky gut, I just need to do this one product for a month or so, and then my gut's back in order. Well, I already told you that study that just having a cheeseburger, french fries, and a soda caused leaky gut for five hours. So there's always some degree back and forth of of the permeability of the gut. It is designed to be slightly permeable, but appropriately so when it is when it is supposed to be. It's when it's pervasive and prevalent is its problem. So we have to constantly be vigilant about making sure we're not taking things and doing things that cause leaky gut because it's going to be a constant vigilance. Now, does that mean you need to take a leaky gut product for the rest of your life? No, but it does mean that you need to be aware of it and that if you have 
autoimmunity or a greater risk for these things, you probably need to be more aware and more attentive to it on a regular basis. So repair is huge and repair is a process. This is not something you can fix in a month in most cases. This is often a multi-stage, multi-round process, particularly if there's autoimmunity. And then there's also this sort of, you know, re-inoculating. So getting the right things in there to help your microbiome come back to balance. And that is a long process because again, how many antibiotics did you have? What messed it up in the first place? And so we have to sort of do that. And then the ultimate goal is to sort of rebalance things. And we may be doing hundreds of other things when we're talking about autoimmunity, but these are really, really vital. And you can't take away the microbiome from the intestinal mucus barrier and the leakiness, they are intimately tied together. So hopefully this makes you want to go have a stool test. (laughs) Nobody really probably wants to do it. And as somebody who's had to do it many times because of my own digestive history, um, it's one of those telling tests you could ever do and probably one of the most uh, valuable tests to figure out what the true health of the body is. And then, like I said, it's we have to be attentive to the intestines and the permeability that happens there with our lifestyle because it's going to be a constant vigilance if you have a greater risk for autoimmune conditions. So I hope you got a lot out of this uh, this episode today. And I could go on for hours, but I felt like we were at a good spot just kind of going back over the five hours of gut repair and really looking at those two pieces. So next week, we will come back with another installment of of how you get autoimmunity and what's really going on there. And I hope you found this valuable. Thank you so much for tuning into this functional life. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. You're here for a reason. I celebrate your commitment to claiming your youthful energy and stepping into this next phase of life, feeling vibrant, healthy, and powerful. I am so proud of you. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD. And if you want a chance to share your story with our tribe or find out more about working with my team, you can sign up at chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. Again, that's chat with betty.com slash podcast. See you next week. Bye-bye.